Good morning. Welcome. My name is Brandon. I'm the pastor of preaching here at Sojourn Heights. Happy Easter to you all. Uh, and as he said, uh, we've been in a series uh, on John, looking at the gospel of John, looking at the life of Jesus, uh, miracles of Jesus, teachings of Jesus. And, and as we have, uh, there's been a repetitive theme that's come up. It's, it's been uh, this word life and how, how Jesus uses the word life. And what we've seen is that uh, in English, for life, we have one word. It's the word life. Uh, but in the uh, language that the Bible is translated from, there, there's multiple words, right? So, for example, there's the word bios. Uh, bios, it's where we get the word biology. It means physical life. But then there's, there's also this word zoe. This word zoe, it means quality of life or the good life. And every time Jesus says life, he's talking about, he uses the word zoe. He's talking about um, the good life. And, uh, and we said that whatever this good life is, we all want it, right? It's a universal desire of humanity. And this, uh, this universal desire, we've also said it starts early, right? So we've, uh, we've talked about my six-year-old daughter uh, who had, not has, but had a boy crush, uh, a boy crush uh, on this little boy named Brighton a few months back. Uh, she came in, she ran up to me in the living room and said, Daddy, 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 it's true. Brighton loves me and he said he's going to marry me. And so I said, you're grounded. Um, uh, and then this week, uh, we got in the car, I looked back, and my little daughter had tears just pouring down her face. Uh, and I said, hey, baby girl, what's, uh, what, what's wrong? And she said, Brighton said he doesn't love me and doesn't want to marry me. So I said, okay, you're ungrounded. And, uh, and what's... Like, what's happening here? here? Here's what's happening here. This is a six-year-old little girl living out a universal human reality. There's a life that I want, and if I can't have it, I'm crushed. There's a life that I want, and if I can't have it, I'm crushed. And whatever that life is, it's the good life. And now, before you uh, just think this is a silly story about a six-year-old child, uh, Luce Ferry, uh, atheist, French philosopher, brilliant French philosopher wrote a book on the history of human thought, looking at uh, really outside the boundaries of just philosophy into religion and sociology and just analyzing human thought. And, and this is what he said. Um, he said that answering the question, what is the good life? What is the good life is the defining question of humanity. What is the good life? Luce Ferry says that's the defining question of humanity. And John has an answer, and his answer is going to take us right to the heart of Easter. And so let's look at it. Verse 1. Now at this point, uh, at this point, the cross has happened. Jesus has, has died. He's been buried. And now, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now I want to, I want to stop right here. I want to talk about something. Uh, in the first century, uh, in the first century, if you were trying to write a document that would have proven that, hey, this, this thing is true, you would have never, never would you have had a woman in the story, ever, ever. To a first century audience who got this letter, who read the letter and saw Mary got to the tomb, it would have been as if I said, hey, my, uh, my five-year-old son, Easton, uh, listen, I got some news for you guys. Jesus is alive. You know how I know? Easton told me, man, he, he went, he saw it, and you'd be like, yeah, but, but he, 
he lives. And I'd be like, I know, we got that from his mom. But I, I can't, I'm telling, not this time, I'm telling you it's true, right? That this would have been the equivalent of me trying to convince you that Jesus is alive because my five-year-old son saw an empty tomb. It would have been utterly ridiculous. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because a common objection to, to religion and Christianity is that religion is oppressive to women. That, uh, that, that religion is uh, restrictive and oppressive to women. And now, the, the truth is uh, that in the first century, and even, and even really much of the world today, in much of the world today, this is true. Uh, and in the first century, it was certainly true. But did you know this? Of the 10, of the ten characters here in John, uh, five are men and five are women. Did you know the Bible has an unprecedented view of the equality of men and women? You don't believe me? Listen to Luce Ferry, our French atheist philosopher. Listen to him. The idea that all human beings were created equal makes its first appearance in Christianity. Makes its first appearance in Christianity. An unprecedented idea and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. So why do I bring this up? Here's why I bring this up. Because the resurrection and therefore Christianity itself is not about oppressing anyone. It's about human flourishing. And this good life, this good life that John in a few minutes is going to invite you to, it's not for a certain class of people. It's not for men versus women. It's not for rich. It's not for the poor. It's, uh, It's not for the elite. It's not for the marginalized. It's for broken and the hurting. It's for all. It is an open invitation to all of humanity to come. It's not for a certain class of people. And it's even, it's even. If you read, if if you would read the, the Bible, especially the Gospels, it's so clear. It's not even for the religious. It's not even for the moral. It's not for the irreligious either. It's not for the immoral either. There, there is, there is no barrier to the invitation to grace in the scriptures. Now, you, you might think there's a barrier to your life because of your life, but that's not in the Bible. You're not going to find that in the pages of the scriptures. And the way the Bible portrays men and women in John shows the equal dignity of all of humanity that Luce verified for us. Now, let me keep reading. So she ran she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, um, I love the Bible. I love all of the Bible, and I, I love John here. When he says the one whom Jesus loved, he's talking about himself, right? So John here, hey, the one that he loved, I was there, all right? But it gets better. Let's keep reading. And said to them, Mary to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. The other disciple, that's John, the one whom Jesus loved. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love it. I mean, this is John saying, hey, basically, I do CrossFit. Peter does Netflix. (laughs) Yeah. If you want to know who the athlete and the disciples are, it's me, baby. I love it. I love it. Verse 5. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, which had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Now, um, here, here's, what, here's what John is doing. He's basically just recapping the events here. So uh, Mary goes, she sees the tomb. Jesus isn't there. He goes, he, she, I mean, she goes, she comes and tells me and Peter. I outrun Peter. I get there first. Peter goes in. He's a little confused. I go in, I see, and I believe because Jesus loves me. And so that's what I, uh, that's what I did. And now, and now, most commentators, most commentators are not going to say uh, that what John, when it says he saw and believed, this isn't um, a full cognition understanding. And they say that based on verse 9. And, 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 um, and part of the reason they say that is because the, the grammatical way that John is writing this, this passage here, grammatically he's building an argument that builds to this, uh, to what he's about to say in verse 9. So here it is. Four. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. So here's the question. Here's what, when John wrote this, this letter, this is the question John is trying to get us to ask. Why the word must? All right, why, why must he rise from the dead? I mean, in light of all that Jesus has done, if he, and, and if uh, you just think about the passages that we've gone through, right? Coming from heaven to earth, uh, the turning water into wine, his teachings, and in light of who Jesus is and all that he has done, why the word must? Here's the answer. The story of the Bible goes like this. Genesis 1, God creates and it's good. Genesis 2, it's still good. It's beautiful. It's harmonious. Genesis 3, sin enters the world and there's a fracture. There's a, there's a real disconnect in relationship. And man now has a broken, a broken relationship with one, God, two, each other, three, the world, and four, himself. And the primary consequence of that broken relationship is death. The first effect of the fall, death, spiritual and physical. And listen, all, all of us in here know. Um, we, we've all been to funerals. Uh, well, I mean, there's some babies, so you probably haven't been to a funeral. But the adults in this room, uh, we've all been to funerals. And listen, we, we know that when we're at a funeral, this is not the way the world is meant to be. There's this instinctive, innate thing in us that says this is not the way the world is meant to be. This is off. It's why when we're at a funeral, you so desperately want to say and if it's a funeral for your loved one, you so desperately want to hear they're in a better place now. Because it's not the way the world's meant to be. We know this. It's instinctive. It's intrinsic. And the rest of the story of the Bible is this. God restoring and redeeming what happened in Genesis 3. God overcoming the brokenness of the fall. God overcoming the brokenness that came with death. How? How? By the resurrection. 
You see, what John knows, what John knows is this. Either one of two things happened. There's really not a third option. Either death pierced the soul of Jesus or Jesus pierced the soul of death. And listen to me. If if death pierced the soul of Jesus, this is a pretty silly waste of our time. If death pierced Jesus, you're sitting here listening to a man of pretty average intelligence blabber about something that didn't happen. See, John, John knows this. The entire message of the Bible hinges on this reality that Jesus must rise. You see, John knows this. No resurrection, no gospel. He knows that the cross is utterly meaningless without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, here's what the cross is. The cross is simply a man who stood there and said, I'm God and I'm gonna rise who died. That's all it is. It's a figment of our imagination that anything real happened on the cross if the resurrection doesn't happen. And John knows no resurrection, no gospel. It's why he says he must rise from the dead. No resurrection, no gospel. He knows that the entire story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from page one to the last page, hinges on the reality that Jesus overcame death. And because John knows that this story, this redemptive story of the Bible hinges on Jesus overcoming death, and John, and John riding on the backside of the resurrection, knows that it happens, he now goes into three conversations. A conversation with Mary, a conversation with his disciples, and then a conversation with Thomas. And we're going to look at the one with Thomas. And here's why we're looking at that one. Because that one shows a really beautiful picture of what faith looks like. And it leads us right into what John says the good life is. So verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but, but he said to them, unless I see him, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Listen, faith for Thomas starts like this. I need proof. I need proof. Hey, disciples, John, hey, boys, listen, I, I, I want to believe. Like, I want to be, be with you. I want to believe. I want to. I just, I need to see it. I need proof. I need, I just, I need to be able to touch him. I need to know that it's real, that it's true. And Thomas wants objective evidence of the resurrection. And here's the reality. We are not that different. We're not that different. 
Now, where Thomas wanted objective evidence, we, generally speaking, want more subjective evidence. Right? We want proof that's based more on what we have or what we don't have. So usually the convo or the prayer, the convo with God looks like this. God, I, I want to believe, but why don't I have? You fill in your blank. You want to know what you deem the good life? It's your blank right there. Why don't I have a spouse? Why, why don't I have a job? Why, why don't I have the house that I want? Or, or it's why do I have? Right, why, why do I have this kind of semi-paralyzing anxiety? Why, why, why do I have this lingering depression that just won't go away? Or, why, why did my mom, why did my dad, or why, why do I have cancer? A few years ago, uh, my, my family, we lived in Dallas, um, and we were about to hop on the light rail and, and head downtown to do a little lunch and downtown day with the fam. And my phone rang, and it was the doctor, or my doctor. Uh, and the opening line to that conversation was, hey, that thing that we thought was a really, uh, just a, a minor cyst is actually a really rare malignant tumor. standing there on the platform, waiting on the train to get here, phone to my ear, looking at my wife, looking at my kids, hands shaking, sweating immediately, thinking, I just, I just want to grow old with Amanda. I just want to sip coffee with her when we're 70 and 80 and 90, and I want to watch my kids grow up. I want to watch them graduate high school and graduate college and get married when they're 50. And here's what I learned. Here's what I learned in the months after that. I learned you can love Jesus. I mean, you can love Jesus and struggle with doubt. I, I learned that faith and doubt can coexist. In those moments where I'm sitting in my office and I've got my computer out and I'm looking at my computer and I'm pretending to work, but on the inside I'm just gripped with this fear of what I... I learned that you can love Jesus and doubt at the same time. And I was sitting there bleeding. God, I just want a sign. I just want something. Please. And I know, I know what I'm supposed to believe. I know that I'm supposed to look at the cross and believe that because Jesus entered into that pain for me, I can sustain this, and he has my good in the end, and I can look at the resurrection and know that no matter what the outcome of this is, there's a better day coming, and yet I can still wrestle with doubt. I learned that doubts and faith can coexist. And in that moment... And in that moment, I was Thomas. I want to believe. I want to believe. But I need to see it. 
I need to see it. And Jesus responded to me in those days in the same way that he responded to Thomas. Let's keep reading. Verse 26. Eight days later. Can you imagine being Thomas? So desperately wanting to know, is Jesus alive? Is he real? I want to see him. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So why eight days? Why, why would Jesus wait eight days, right? Knowing uh, what, what Thomas is going through, knowing uh, what he wanted, knowing what Thomas needed, why would Jesus wait eight days? And here's the deal. I, I, I can't answer that question. Uh, I, don't, I don't know for sure why. The, the text doesn't tell us. But here's what I do know. Here's what I can tell you. That, that Jesus, knowing what was best for Thomas, knew and thought it was best for him to wait eight days and sit in it. He knew and believed that what was best for Thomas was, was for him to sit in that doubt for eight days. And the truth is that in the months after that phone call, Jesus let me sit in my wrestle and in my struggle. And the truth is, for some of you in this room, Jesus is letting you sit in the wrestle and the struggle and the doubt right now. And he's been letting you sit in it for a long time. Right? See, some of you, you came in here today and you've got your Easter jacket on like me and you've got your Easter smile on like the rest of us and your hair's done just right and you came in here and you know, and you know that your marriage is crumbling. You know that anxiety is gripping you. You know that you are desperately lonely. You know that depression has been a 10, 15 year reality for you and you are desperate for Jesus to enter in and take it away. Jesus, loving you like you have never been loved before, knows that what is best is for you to sit in it. Some of you are in here and you just feel like, I'm, like, listen, I, I have felt for years like I don't belong in a room like this. Like, listen, this, this thing, like, this is an Easter thing for me, but listen, I, I don't belong here. Listen, I know my life, I know me, I know my addictions, I know my, you fill in the blank. I, I know that I don't feel like I, and Jesus has let you sit in that for years, and today he's about to invite you out of it. Because in your pain, in your wrestle, in your feeling like I don't belong, Jesus is trying to say to you what he's about to say to Thomas in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put, you, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. But here's what Jesus did. He met Thomas where he was. He met Thomas where he was and he said, hey, put, put your finger here. Put your hand here. Touch my side. And what Jesus is saying to you today isn't so much put your hand here or your finger here, but he's saying put your heart here, put your trust here, bring your hope over here. And when you do, when you do, 
you begin to see Jesus the way that Thomas sees Jesus in verse 28. Thomas answered. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Listen, Thomas did not just say Lord and God. This is This is what happens when Jesus enters into your pain, when Jesus meets you where you are. You look to him and like Thomas, no longer have abstract theological statements about who Jesus is, but you lead out with my Lord, my God. In the same way that when I look at my wife, when I look at my beautiful bride, I don't simply look at her and say, she's a wife. That's that's my wife. When my my three kids, when, when I look at them, I don't, I don't simply look at them in the room over there and go, hey, there's a kid. I look and say, that's, that's my kid. That's my child. There's a relationship there that is deeply, deeply personal. And in the same way, Thomas is looking at Jesus and saying, my Lord, my God. And the reason that Thomas can say that is because Jesus first on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, grace can become personal to Thomas because grace is personal to Jesus. Jesus can meet you where you are and allow you to look at him and say, my Lord, my God, because on the cross, he looked at the Father and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Jesus was forsaken so that you would never have to be. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus becomes the path to the life that all of humanity wants. Let's see it. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. For you have seen me. Blessed are those who have seen and yet not believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now listen, this verse 30, 31 right here, this is John's kind of thesis statement. This is is John's, hey, you want to know why I wrote the Gospel of John? So that you might believe and have life and have life in his name. And did you notice where he put it? Did you notice that he could have put it anywhere in the letter that he wanted to? In fact, Luke leads out with why he's writing his letter. John could have led out with why he's writing the letter also, but he didn't. He didn't. He put it after the resurrection. Why? Because he knows the resurrection is the path to the good life. That the life that you want, believing in him, the good like it's through belief in Jesus, and the pathway there is the resurrection of Jesus. And he knows that this. This resurrection addresses humanity's most fundamental desire. Listen to Luce Ferry again. Our atheist French philosopher. Listen to him. What humanity wants most 
what I'm about to read you is a man who has given his life to studying human thought, philosophical, religious, tribal, you name it. And he says what humanity wants most is for death not to be the end, to be reunited with loved ones. If possible, if possible to hear their voices. Now listen to Luce describe Christianity. In this arena, Christianity might have used its big guns. It promises, it promises no less than the life we all wish for. French atheist philosopher, looking at the spectrum of human thought and saying, what all of humanity wants is found in Jesus. Now, Luce believes this life is not possible, believes it doesn't exist. I've actually tweeted to Luce to try to get him to respond to me and Sort of dialogue, he hasn't responded yet, but <laughs> we're getting there. But Luce, believing that it's not possible, this is what he says. He says the best we could hope for, the best we could hope for is a life stripped of both fear and hope. If I, if I don't hope, I won't fear not having what I hope for, and that because today is all that I have, that's the best that I can hope for. That's the good life. And John, John has something utterly different to say. Listen, in those, in those weeks, in those months, when I'm in my office, when I'm with my wife, and I'm thinking, listen, I, I hear you say this is a minor cancer, but the word cancer alone will strike you to your core. And there's no such thing as minor when it's in your own body. And there's no such thing as minor when it's so rare they know nothing about it. And in those moments, what Luce has to offer me does nothing for my soul. To think that today is all that I have. And so if I could just strip my life of fear and hope, how in the world could I look at my wife and kids and say, the good life isn't one of fear. How can I say the good life isn't one of hope? How can I not hope for tomorrow and the next day and the next day? You see, to strip life of fear and hope, you also have to strip it of love. But John is saying, John is saying, because listen, you, You who walked in here today, feeling like, hey, I'm just going to hear a cute little story about a man that I don't really believe in, risen from the grave. And then you're going to walk out of here knowing that your marriage is crumbling, that on the inside, you're, man, your heart is hard and you're angry and you, you snap in a rage and you have no explanation of why. You just know that my life is not a life that I dreamed of living. John is saying, listen, today is not all that you have. John is saying, because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the resurrection of Jesus, 
there's a better life available. See, the reason that the reason that philosophers across the globe try to answer the question, what is the good life? And the reason that you're sitting here going, man, I know there has to be more to life than this, is because humanity and you and I, we instinctively, we intrinsically know that that's true. There is more to life than this. You see, and what John is trying to say through the resurrection of Jesus is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, you have permission not just to see tomorrow different, but also to see today different. The resurrection of Jesus gives you permission to hope today. So what, what's the invitation of this Easter Sunday? The invitation is this, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. And here's the promise that comes with that. You ready? The promise is not, hey, you're, you're going you're gonna to believe today and you're going to walk out of here and all of a sudden, man, that broken marriage is, bam, you're going to, Look at one another over lunch and start crying over the joy you have. And you're not going to walk out of here and just the anxiety just go away from you. You're not going to walk out of here and that 10-year depression just vanish. You see, what Jesus promises, what John is offering, is not better life circumstances. It's a better life. the good life, the life that John and Luce know all of humanity has been searching for. It's found. It's found in Jesus, and it's available because of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, we do love you. Uh, we, we thank you for the men and women in this room right now that we, that we can gather together remembering and celebrating the resurrection I pray for my, um, my fellow follower of Jesus in here. Uh, I, I pray that they would know uh, that just because they're wrestling with doubt doesn't mean that faith is non-existent in their life. And I pray that they would look to Jesus, look to his resurrection, and know that the life that they long for, the life that they want, the life that they're searching for, it's found. It's found in him. May we strive to live that life today. And then for uh, my friend in this room who, uh, who, who is not a follower of Christ, I pray, I pray you might grant the courage to look honestly at our lives, take honest stock of who we are, where we are, And that for the first time, maybe for the first time, uh, we would look in, and as Thomas said, we'd look at Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. We pray in Christ's name.